From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression. I'm Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Delighted you're joining us this week. If you're not already a subscriber, please do sign up wherever you get your podcasts. This week, another Kennedy for president, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., scion of the first family of democratic politics, is making waves in the party's primary contest for the 2024 presidential election. Challenging incumbent President Joe Biden, Kennedy's launched an insurgent campaign running against what he's called a corrupt merger of state and corporate power. Kennedy, son of the assassinated presidential candidate, former senator and attorney general of the same name, and of course, nephew of President John F. Kennedy, made his own name for years as a campaigning lawyer. He pursued environmental cases against big energy and other companies, but perhaps was best known as a fierce critic of vaccines, especially those given to children. He's made claims repeatedly that have been widely discredited by scientific evidence about the dangers of mass immunization. And he's, of course, spent some lot of time suing pharmaceutical companies. But his presidential campaign is focused on what he argues is government overreach. He cites evidence of COVID lockdown restrictions and vaccine and other mandates. He's also taking on supposed power and corrupt influence of big corporations and what he describes as a broad political climate of censorship and creeping authoritarianism. Though he's widely regarded as a long shot or even a fringe candidate, Kennedy's message does seem to be resonating with a sizable number of Democratic voters. CNN poll last week measured his support among possible Democratic primary voters at 20%. Now, Biden is still at 60%, but that kind of number for a challenger within his own party often spells deep trouble for an incumbent president. So what's going on? Is Kennedy showing mainly about Democratic disillusionment with Biden? Or is there something about his populist message that is really connecting with voters? Well, let's ask the man himself. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. joins me now. Robert Kennedy, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Thank you for having me. Well, so you've launched your campaign a month ago. I think it's fair to say, as I said in my introduction, that it's been making waves. You're getting quite significant support in the opinion polls. I want to talk about all the things you've been talking about and the issues you're campaigning on. I want to talk about, start though, if I may, with something that you haven't been talking very much about, which is where in many ways you made your reputation over the last 15 or 20 years as a campaigner against uh, on environmental questions, but also particularly on this question of vaccines. You were very much associated. I was very struck when you launched your campaign, a number of newspaper headlines read, anti-vaxxer Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announces presidential campaign. And you were famous for that, including, you know, siding yourself with some highly controversial research on vaccines for children and a lot of research has been discredited. You're not really talking about that, though, even though that's the most the thing that's made you perhaps most famous over the last few years. Is that a political convenience decision that you think it's kind of not helpful to you? Or does it reflect in any way some way that you've actually retracted some of those things that you've said? No, I'm happy to retract anything where if somebody shows me where I got something wrong. But no, I'm not leading with the issue because it's not a primary issue of concern to most Americans, but I'm happy to talk about the issue in whatever detail people want. There's some crowds that I talk to that that's what they want to hear. I have a big following in the health freedom community. I talked to a group um, of them in San Diego this week, and it was moms mainly, and that's what they want to hear about. But, you know, I have a broader message than that. I want to talk about the war. I want to talk about the economy. I want to talk about the attack on the middle class. And so those are the issues that I'm primarily leading. I mean, again, I I don't want to dwell too much on this, but it is obviously a topic of importance. You say you're happy to retract anything that's pointed out. I mean, 
mean, there have been many of these cases that, again, you've been associated with the, the vaccines, the MMR vaccine, the famous study that was proven to be almost entirely fraudulent, which suggested a link between MMR vaccines and autism in children. Do you continue to believe that many of these childhood vaccines are actually producing these very adverse effects, or do you think the science is wrong? No, I, I think the science is overwhelming and very clear that, yes, the vaccines are producing a tsunami of chronic disease in our country. The study that you referred to, the Andrew, Andrew, Andrew Wakefield study, uh, the British study. Yeah, yeah. And that study was interesting because it, it was only a footnote in that study where he, I think he said eight of the 12, there were 12 authors of yeah. that study and they're all prominent physicians. He said eight of the 12 children that we examined, their mothers said, that they had onset of a set of symptoms immediately after the vaccine, the MMR vaccine. And that prompted the same kind of wave of horror from the industry and, you know, that ultimately ended up in the retraction of the article, uh, for better or for worse. But there's literally hundreds and hundreds of articles that show that vaccines cause autism. And by the way, the vaccine courts have awarded millions and millions of dollars to children who got autism from the vaccines. The heads of CDC, et cetera, the Hannah Polling case is one where the child received $20 million for getting autism from the vaccine. There's no ambiguity as what happened, but there's also hundreds of studies. There are bench studies, there are retrospective studies, there are placebo-controlled trials, there are animal studies that indicate that connection. I actually have assembled about 450 of those studies in my book. I think it's a 2016 or 2014 book. I'm aerosol. Let the science speak. And none of those studies have been refuted. Well, the British Medical Journal famous study in 2011, especially over the uh, the Andrew Wakefield science, said that the initial study was conducted, quote, dishonestly, irresponsibly. The data were bogus. And it said clear evidence of falsification of data should now close the door on this damaging vaccine scare. Do you think that was just uh, them speaking? No, I think the journals themselves, that you need to read these studies chronically. But I don't base anything I say on that study. That's another trope of the industry. Um, but was that study fairly retracted? I would argue no, that it wasn't. In fact, the central finding of that study that was the, an, an, a finding that said that that linked autism to gastrointestinal problems, which had never been, because originally autism was a psychiatric diagnosis, and a psychiatric diagnosis had never been linked to gastrointestinal problems. And that is now regarded as accepted Science, As I said, it was just a footnote in that study that says, by the way, eight of the kids we examined, their mothers reported that they had onset of autism immediately after the MMR vaccine. This is something that should be examined. So there was a huge publicity barrage. And then the medical cartel gathered to stifle that study. And of course, the medical journals, which are primarily funded by the pharmaceutical industry, were part of that. Yeah. The same way they did with the COVID vaccine. So, so although you, you, so you're not making it a key part of your campaign, and I really want to come on to those things you are making key part of your campaign. If you were elected president, do you believe these vaccines are doing enormous harm to children? Would you, you know, through executive action or seek legislation or whatever to essentially halt these vaccination programs? I would actually have the studies done so that we can actually have an idea about the, what the risk profile is for those products. None of these products have ever been tested prior to giving to children. There's now 72 vaccines that are now mandated for kids, 72 doses of 16 vaccines now mandated for American children. 
not one of them has ever been tested for safety in a pre-licensing placebo-controlled trial. So nobody can tell you whether any of those products are averting more problems than they're causing. What I would do as president is immediately order NIH to do those studies. Okay, well, let's move on again to the topics to say that you have chosen to make the focus of your campaign. When you launched your campaign, you talked about a, quote, corrupt merger. You were essentially campaigning against a corrupt merger of state and corporate power that's threatening to impose a new kind of corporate feudalism in our country. What do you mean by that? There's a hundred ways to talk about that. One of the ways to talk about it is the capture of our agencies. And I'll give you an example. When I sued the Monsanto company, we came across emails during the discovery process that showed that the head of the pesticide division at EPA for a decade was actually secretly working for Monsanto. And unfortunately, that is not the exception. That's the rule. He was killing studies. He was altering studies. He was ghostwriting studies for his true boss, which was Monsanto. And, you know, I've been litigating against these big polluters, against the agricultural industry, factory food farms, against the cell phone industry and telecommunications, and against, of course, the pharmaceutical industry for many years. In each of those cases, the agencies that are supposed to protect Americans from bad behavior of those industries have now been captured and turned into sock puppets in the industries that they're supposed to regulate. And this is true across the government. It's true, and it happens through, you know, agency capture occurs through a variety of mechanisms, revolving doors, funding. Sorry, but do you think that's true? I mean, I, I take your point, and I think a lot of people sympathize with some of the things you say, but but you talk about the EPA and you talk about Monsanto then in particular, but you've talked about the way in which these companies capture agencies. I mean, given the way the Biden administration has been ex- approaching, for example, environmental issues, things like permitting for oil exploration and things like that, and given the, some of the EPA's rulings that we've seen under Democratic presidents, do you really think that reflects the proposition that the EPA has been captured by energy companies? Do you think these big energy companies are really driving uh, EPA decision-making? I do think so. And I think they not only drive decision-making in the industry, but they also drive decision-making in Congress, which is why they're so heavily subsidized. I mean, if the coal industry, for example, had to comply with the law, it would not be allowed to do mountaintop removal mining. You know, mountaintop removal mining has now cut down the 500 biggest mountains in West Virginia. These are our Purple Mountains Majesties. These are the landscapes where Daniel Boone and David Crockett roam. There's no American that want to see any of those mountains cut down, uh, much less flatten an area the size of Delaware. It's all illegal. They've filled 2,200 miles of rivers and streams. And the only way they get away with it is because EPA is a captive agency. We have now mercury in every freshwater fish in America, according to the National Academy of Sciences, though that mercury is coming primarily from coal-burning power plants. It is illegal, but the plants get away with it because the EPA is captured by the industry. The forest cover on the high peaks of the Appalachians from Georgia all the way up to northern Quebec have been completely deforested, and the high-altitude lakes on those ridges are now sterile from acid rain. That is another outcome of 
coal-burning power plants, which is supposed to be regulated legally. It's illegal, and yet they get away with it because we have a captive agency. I could give you a hundred more examples. Well, let me talk the broader question then about environmental energy policy. Again, this is something you've been very much associated with for a long time. I mean, the Biden administration has taken a pretty, what's seen in certainly in historic terms, as a pretty pro-green line. How much further would you go? I mean, the U.S. is enormously rich in energy resources, coal, oil, natural gas, obviously in particular. Do you want to see that essentially, do you want to see that essentially shut down? My approach to it is that I think we should have our decisions dictated by the marketplace, by free market capitalism. I think we ought to eliminate the direct subsidies and the environmental subsidies, in other words, the externalities from all of our energy sources, and that we should build a grid. We should connect a grid, a robust grid that's able to transport electrons in two directions. That's a smart grid. And we should eliminate the laws that were written by the oil and coal incumbents that favor their industries, favor the dirtiest, filthiest, most poisonous, most toxic, warmongering fields from hell rather than the cheap, clean, green, wholesome, and patriotic fields from heaven. You point out that we have very, we're rich in resources in this country. Well, we're the richest country in geothermal in probably a second or third in solar and close to the top in wind. Uh, we could power our entire country on green energy, but we should go with the most efficient, the cheapest form of energy, but we need them. You flavor market approach. Would that mean then, I mean, obviously, the, some of the green energy sources you've talked about are beneficiaries of significant subsidies, whether it's uh, electric vehicles or solar power or various other uh, forms, that, especially in the, as a result of the most recent legislation there's significant subsidies there. Would you prefer to see a level playing field completely with no subsidies, no tax advantages for any form of energy production? Ultimately, I would. But for nascent industries, when an industry is just getting started and when there is, for example, national security uh, justification for to give subsidies, I think it is permissible and, and uh, desirable that a country subsidize new industry. And I'll give you an example. When George Washington was inaugurated here in New York, he had to get an Italian-made coat because we didn't have even we didn't have good tailors in this country, and the British had cut off our capacity to do finished products in the fabric industry. They took our raw cotton, made it themselves, made the clothing themselves, and then sold it back to us. And George Washington said, "This isn't right. We need to subsidize the start of an industry in this country to make ourselves independent of Great Britain." And they began to put huge amounts of money into fabric processing, and we developed our own industry. You know, it was a huge industry, for example, in New England, you know, right up until the middle of this century. Oh, I think it's permissible for there's national security justification and a financial justification to give subsidies to these nascent industries at the beginning of their life. But a mature industry should not be getting any subsidies. One of the things I think that's appealing about your campaign to a lot of people is the criticism that you've been making stridently about a lot of the government policies over COVID, particularly the lockdown mandates, the vaccine mandates, the various other mandates. I think a lot of people share the view that those were both unnecessary damaging and a kind of expression of a sort of a creeping authoritarianism that we see. That is so much associated with the modern Democratic Party, I must say. It was, I mean, I know we can talk about President, former President Trump, but obviously it has been Democratic administrations in the big states, President Biden in the early days of his administration, which did seem to be most insistent on this 
government-mandated approach to the way in which people live our lives. Do you think that direction the Democratic Party has taken in the last few years is maybe one of the reasons why people are expressing interest in your campaign? I think it's an issue that more and more Americans are understanding and are troubled by. I've pointed out that it was President Trump, and as you point out, it's kind of the uniparty when it came to lockdowns as it is to war. But it was President Trump who implemented them. And the, the thing is that President Trump knew better. He clearly voiced his reluctance, his reticence about the lockdowns and about some of the other mandates at the outset and about the moves to make sure Americans, to deny access to Americans to early treatment, for example, with hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which have turned out to be life-saving remedies. But of course, the Democrats then bought into that too. To me, it's not a partisan issue. It's President Trump implemented them. It cost $16 trillion to our country. It shifted wealth. $4 trillion in wealth from the middle class to the super rich. It was an attack on the poorest people in our country. We created a billionaire a day during the pandemic. We allowed Amazon to close down all of its competitors and rake in the cash. The billionaires that had money, like Jeffrey Bezos, that had their billions before, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, increased their wealth by 30% during the lockdowns. And American children lost 22 IQ points. A third of children are going to require remedial education up through high school. And some of them will never recover from what we did to them. And, you know, we shouldn't have done it. It was a bad policy from the outset. I was criticizing those policies from the outset. You know, we should have taken the traditional path, which was outlined in the pandemic preparedness protocols by WHO, by CDC, by the European Medical Agency, by the NHS in Great Britain. All of them agreed. You do not lock down whole populations. You quarantine the sick. You protect the healthy, but you encourage healthy people to continue to go to work. The impacts of not doing that are cataclysmic, and we saw that. Do you think that some of the, again, what's one of the things that's so striking about your support over these issues, such as maybe excessive corporate power, particularly government interventions, government authoritarianism, it's striking that there's some agreement here on left and right that these some of these things, although despite the fact that President Trump did do many of those things. He is now voicing criticism about lockdowns. Many on the right, I think, especially, you know, Ron DeSantis and the Republican Party has made his campaign in large part about the record that he had about lifting lockdowns. There does seem to be a kind of a convergence here among your supporters, perhaps people on, you know, maybe more traditional Democratic supporters, along with this sort of so-called populist rights around some of these issues, anti-government, anti-corporate, feeling of sort of remoteness from bigness, a sense of the alienation, if you like, if I can use a term like that, of ordinary people from these big, powerful institutions. Do you think that there is a kind of almost bipartisan, do you sense that there's a kind of bipartisan convergence in that direction? Yes, I do. I think there's a convergence on the left, on the populist left and the populist right. And that, you know, my dad used to look at what was happening in Latin America, where you had this extreme stratification in class, um, where there was huge aggregations of wealth and the oligarchy above, and then you had widespread poverty below and no middle class, and he thought that was untenable. And now we're looking at the same kind of stratification in the United States. My father was leading a populist uprising, but he would look at Latin America and he'd he'd say, instead of helping the oligarchs and these military juntas share their values, the United States really needs to give aid directly to the poor. 
to build middle classes in that country. And he said, and if we don't do that, the communists are going to come in and there, because there's going to be a revolution. There's going to be an uprising. People won't put up with this for so long. And either the communists are going to capture that or it's going to be captured for the force of idealism. And I see the same thing happening in this country today. I think there's an enormous discontent. People are desperate in the middle class in this country, the, the former middle class. Even people who are fairly wealthy, who live in big mansions, are living on the edge of a dead cliff. They're living lives of desperation, fear, and they all feel that they're not being listened to. And there's going to be a revolution and somebody's going to capture that. And it's either going to be somebody like Donald Trump, who I think will lead us into a dark place, or it's going to be captured by forces of idealism. And, you know... What does that revolution look like? I mean, what does this populist revolution, how does it manifest itself? What does it result in? How does it change the way this country is run? What do you expect? I think it's the dismantling of this merger, this corrupt merger of state and corporate power, the end of the, you know, of the of the warfare state, of the surveillance state, the end of this permanent of forever wars that we have that America needs to start projecting, as China does, economic power abroad rather than military power, which has been a catastrophe for our country, for our national security, and for the safety of Americans. We are not safer because of all these military involvements. We're not more prosperous. We're going to take a quick break there, but when we come back, I'll have more with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the leading challenger for the Democratic presidential primary race against Joe Biden in next year's presidential election. Stay with us. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com F-O-E-F podcast to secure your spot. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. We're talking about his insurgent campaign for the Democratic primary nomination against Joe Biden. Uh, let's talk in particularly Ukraine. You've been critical of the U.S. support for Ukraine and the U.S. policy towards it. Recently, you were asked in an interview, what would you do about the war in Ukraine? And your answer was settle it. That's what you said, settle it. The Russians have repeatedly offered to settle. But the Russians are repeatedly offering to settle on the basis of seizing parts of Ukraine, seizing parts of a foreign country that isn't theirs. Wouldn't that be settling on Russian, on any basis of a Russian approach or kind of ideas the Russians have? Wouldn't it reward their aggression? Can the United States afford to do that? The original Russian offer, which was the Minsk Accords, which they offered to sign and support, did not dismantle Ukraine. It simply protected the ethnic Russians in Donbass who were under attack, had 14,000 of them killed. Their language had been taken from them, and they had voted to join Russia, and Russia refused. Russia did not want them. Russia said, no, we want to keep Ukraine a, a functioning nation, but that they should have some autonomy within Ukraine to protect their citizens of the Donbass and protect their language and culture. And, you know, I think that that was a reasonable demand. And Russia also asked that NATO be kept out of Ukraine, which I think was also reasonable. You know, my uncle, John Kennedy, always said that you have to put yourself in the shoes of your adversary. 
June 10th is the 60th anniversary of his speech to, uh, at American University, which is probably the most important speech of his life. That speech was an interesting speech because he was telling the American people what the Cold War was like from the Russian point of view. And he reminded Americans that, you know, because we were raised thinking we were in the, won the World War II. Americans want it. We watched all of the TV shows. I watched Combat with Vic Morrow, and it was the Americans who won the war. And my uncle was saying to him, no, it was the Russians who bore that brunt of that war. One out of every seven Russians were killed. They were invaded through the Ukraine. Three times they've been invaded. And we need to understand that. And the Russians from the beginning were saying, it's a red line to bring NATO into the Ukraine. And it wasn't, you know, it's not just me saying this. It's George Kennan, who's the architect of American foreign policy, and he said, if you move NATO to the east, the Russians are going to be forced to respond with violence. But your uncle gave that famous speech less than a year after he had stood down the Russians in an act of extraordinary intervention, and indeed one could say aggression, over the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the nearest the world's been brought to a nuclear exchange in the last 75 years because your uncle stood up to Russian aggression. Do you think Vladimir Putin is the aggressor here, or do you not? think that my uncle made a deal with the russians and the deal was that we would remove that we both understood that we have a sphere of national security and that we would remove the jupiter missiles from turkey if he removed the russian missiles from cuba we have a rule in our hemisphere that the united states enforced for 200 years called the monroe doctrine that says nobody gets to put weapons of aggression from a european country in our hemisphere the whole hemisphere well we're putting them a few hundred miles from moscow we have got Aegis missile systems in Romania and Poland. Do you think there's a moral equivalence between the US and Russia then, that, that Russia should be allowed essentially to uh, have a kind of a Monroe Doctrine in Europe? So I, I, I don't think it has anything to do with morality. I think it has to do with recognizing that people have legitimate concerns about their national security and that every state has the right to protect its citizens and its borders. And we need to understand how the Russians view things. And, you know, this is long before Putin. The Russians were warning us not to move NATO to the east. Do you think Putin is an aggressor or do you think he's just simply defending his own national interests in a, in a reasonable way? No, I think his invasion was illegal. It was brutal. And he had other choices. So what do we do, given those circumstances, other than support the Ukrainians in their fight? Well, the Ukrainians wanted to settle the war, and the United States didn't want to settle. And there were people within Ukraine who also didn't want to settle. But Zelensky won 70% of the vote in 2019 on a peace platform. Here's a completely unknown guy who's a comedian and actor, and he wins because he's promising peace. And he promised to sign the Minsk Accords, and then we didn't want him to. And every decision we've made, it's been about enlarging that war. And, you know, President Biden has said that the real reason that we're in that war is regime change in Russia, which is the long-term aspiration of the neocons who have been running the White House now. I'm just struggling to understand, would you just accept the situation, again, without American support for Ukraine, I think most people would agree over the last year, the Ukrainians have fought incredibly bravely, but they would probably not have been able to resist the Russians well, in the yeah, way that they have. So is the alternative just to accept Russian, it sounds as though, and I'm, I'm not putting words into your mouth, but it sounds as though, given your reference to the Monroe Doctrine and the way in which you know countries look after their own interests, and particularly in their own spheres, that somehow we just have to accept that Russia should either, from a territorial or at least a kind of 
strategic sense, be allowed to dominate Ukraine, those other countries on its borders. Do you accept that? Oh, I've never said that. That's you putting words in my mouth. I'm saying that it, under a analogous circumstances in the United States, if Russia put nuclear weapons right in Mexico or Cuba or Canada, that we would invade and we would take them out. So all I'm saying is, if we want peace, which everybody says we want, then we need to put ourselves in the Russians' shoes and figure out why are they doing this? What do they need to, to get to peace? And what we've said again, you know, President Biden said he wants a regime change in Russia. That's not a good thing for the Ukrainians. Lloyd Austin, as defense secretary, said us our reason for being in the Ukraine is to exhaust the Russian army and degrade its capacity to fight elsewhere in the world. Well, that's not a humanitarian mission. That's not something that is good for the Ukrainians. That's something that has put Ukraine into the middle of a proxy war between two great powers who neither of whom are fighting in the interest of the Ukraine. And what I'm saying is, let's figure out what's the best thing for the Ukraine. Do you take a similar approach to China? Let's say you're president of the United States and you get that 3 a.m. call telling you that Chinese forces have started to attack Taiwan with a clear intent to invade and take Taiwan back into China. The U.S. has long maintained its position of strategic ambiguity there, but President Biden has certainly indicated that the U.S. would back Taiwan with military support if necessary. What would your response be if China were to do that? Yeah, well, it would be stupid for me to project that at, at any rate, which is exactly why we have that posture of strategic ambiguity, because everybody knows that any president who answers that question would be an idiot. Uh, so I'm not going to answer that question. But I think what we should be doing is, you know, there are people within the White House who appear to want war with China. And I think we should be de-escalating that. The Chinese don't want a war with us. They don't want to go to war against. And the Chinese and the Taiwanese ought to be able to work out their differences without the threat of war from the United States. We should be de-escalating. The Chinese want to compete with us and they want to dominate us. But they don't want to do it militarily. The last thing they want is to fight World War III. They want to fight us on the economic playing field. And I'm not scared of battling China on the economic playing field. I have faith in the United States system, our capitalist system, our free market system. But if we give it a chance, we can vanquish any competitor in the world, including the Chinese. A couple of controversial things that you've said, and uh, admittedly you've retracted, but I, I want to just quickly go over them that have happened recently. You recently said some very complimentary things about Roger Waters, the Pink Floyd guitarist, who is sort of notoriously said some, let's say, highly controversial and many people have deemed anti-Semitic things. Now, to be fair, you did delete that tweet and you then did say you were a strong supporter of Israel. I supported Roger Waters because of his position, his courageous position on the Ukraine war and his position on the COVID lockdowns. And that's what my tweet was about when I came to understand that he had other positions that were more controversial, that were hurtful to certain people. I took it down out of respect that. Last year, you suggested to a demonstration that life was more difficult today than it was for Anne Frank and those attempting to flee Nazi Germany, saying, you quote, even in Hitler's Germany, you could cross the Alps to Switzerland, you could hide in an attic like Anne Frank did. You know, there's just this sort of, some people see as a kind of slightly kind of worrying pattern here in remarks that you make that maybe at minimum reflect a sort of a slight flippancy, at least about the Holocaust and about some of these things. I never compared COVID lockdowns with a you know, COVID response to the Holocaust. That was a trope that was invented by CNN and then reported by, repeated again and again by the rest of the mainstream media and me being censored. I have had no capacity to respond to that. But if you, anybody who looks at my speech will see that that's not what I was doing. 
I was talking about the arrival of all of these new technologies that could be used by for surveillance and control, the AI technology, which we should all be worried about. The facial recognition systems that are now ubiquitous, 415,000 low-level satellites that are going to be looking at every square inch of the Earth 24 hours a day, the GPS, etc. Our devices that can listen to us and see where we are and trace us and track us and look at every transaction. And I said that the arrival of these technologies is mean, is a threat to our democracy. What we ought to be doing right now is strengthening our democratic institutions rather than weakening them. And that in all of the totalitarian systems in the history, and I gave examples of multiple left-wing and right-wing totalitarian systems, that the ambition of every totalitarian system is complete control of human behavior. But throughout history, no totalitarian system has ever been able to achieve that. Now, today, because of technologies, we will be able to. So we need to strengthen those institutions. That very valid point was deliberately, I would say, misread by the mainstream media into casting me as somebody who was insensitive to the victims of the Holocaust, and nothing that I said evinced that. Isn't it law political rhetoric, though, that the Nazi crimes, the Holocaust, was so completely singular and kind of sui generis in history that making any comparison of any regime and certainly any mandates uh, related to how people are supposed to behave in the event of a public health emergency, to making any analogy whatsoever to anything the Nazis did is surely off limits. I wasn't making an analogy. There was no analogy in what I said. I was making a point about the creep of totalitarian regimes. And, you know, and when I grew up, the mantra about the Holocaust was never again. Uh, how are we going to make sure it never happens again if Americans and other people around the world are not aware of the milestones of totalitarianism. You know, people compare Putin to Hitler all the time. Is that invalid? I think it's invalid, but I think they should be able to do it. People ought to be able to make the point, you know, people who don't believe that should be able to make the point, no, he's not like Hitler because of this, this, and the other thing. But I don't think that it is a good idea to cancel people who talk about history, whether it's the history of slavery in this country, whether it's the history of the Indian genocide in our country, whether it's, uh, you know, the history of what happened in Rwanda or Uganda, you know, in our own lifetimes. We need to be able to talk about history. And particularly if we're going to avoid tyranny, we need to understand how it comes about. And we need to be able to argue about that and debate about it without being canceled, without being, you know, criticized. So I don't know. I don't agree with you. I think we need to be able to talk about these things. And just quickly on Israel-Palestine, do you consider yourself a firm supporter of Israel and Israeli security? Do you think that it's right now it's once again involved in another a battle with Palestinian forces who are clearly trying to inflict serious damage? Do you consider yourself sort of in the mainstream of what has been certainly in yeah, the last few years? I consider myself in to feel the same way that my family has always felt a strong affinity for Israel understanding that it is one of our most important strategic partners in the world and that it's a, a friend of the United States and that it's a special place, a sacred place for the Jewish people and that Israel has a right to exist and that it has a right to secure its borders. Finally, you're making waves in this race in a way that I think pundits and you're right, the mainstream media so often gets everything wrong. Something got this wrong. The CNN poll put you at 20% with Joe Biden at 60%, which, you know, again, given that that is an incumbent president, that's an impressive showing for Challenger. You were telling me earlier, you know, you're getting impressive crowds, you're getting lots of expressions of support. What's going on, do you think, here? Why do you think you seem to be building this head of steam against an incumbent Democratic president seeking a second term? I think a lot of people feel like the Democratic Party has lost its bearings and that the country has lost its bearings. 
and that we've been derailed, that the country that, you know, we all grew up feeling proud of is now that our children may not have that opportunity. And I think a lot of people want to restore that. The same CNN poll did ask people why they were open to supporting Kennedy. And it said 20% of them cited the Kennedy name. That still obviously seems to have resonance, family connections. 17% said they would consider supporting Kennedy because even though they don't know enough about him, but want to learn more. 12% of Kennedy curious voters, according to this, said they would support his views, policies. Is it primarily dissatisfaction with Joe Biden? Is it to do with his age, with concern about the way he's led the party, the way he's led the country? Is that what's driving people to look for an alternative, or do you think some of these specific issues you're talking about are actually resonating? I think, like, as that poll suggests, that it's a combination of things. Personally, do you think Biden is the age issue? Is that important? Do you think that's something that is worrying people? And I don't have any particular insight on that that everybody else doesn't have. You said you think you could beat Donald Trump. Why do you say that? Why do you think you, rather than Joe Biden, beat him once? Why, why, why can't he do it again? Well, I'm just looking at the polls right now, which show them even or Biden losing, and our inter. Internal polls show me beating Trump and beating Governor DeSantis. And I think the reason that's true is that I get most Democratic voters are going to vote for me, that I also have very, very strong support, stronger than any other candidate with independence. And then I get a lot of Republican crossover votes as well. There's a lot of Republicans who voted twice for Obama and then voted for Trump. Another of your uncles famously challenged President Carter in uh, 1980, didn't win the nomination, but was generally, I think, thought to have done so much damage. And normally when incumbent presidents do face a challenge with their own party, it's usually terminal for them in the general election. Is that the risk here that you actually you don't win the nomination, but you do build up significant support? And whether it was with, say, LBJ in 68 and McCarthy, or whether it was with Carter and Kennedy or George H.W. Bush and Pat Buchanan, you damaged the incumbent so much that they're unable to win the general election? Yeah, I don't think that President Biden's troubles are coming from me, number one. Number two, I ran my uncle's campaign in the the southern states in 1980, and that was a very, very bitter campaign. There was personal bitterness between my uncle and President Carter, and that bitterness, I think, percolated down to, you know, the people who supported him within the Democratic Party. And my approach to this campaign has been to not make it personal. You know, I've known President Biden. I've had a long friendship with him. I'm not going to make this a personal campaign, but I am going to talk about issues, and that is good for our democracy. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this week. Please do join us again next week, and I'll have another deep look at a big issue that's shaping our world, our politics, and our culture. Until then, thanks for joining us, and goodbye.